0: Good morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead, open it up to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at Luke 7 today, verses 36 through 50. We are in between a couple sermon series right now, and so last week and this week, Pastor Jamie and myself are taking the opportunity to preach a passage of Scripture that has personally meant a lot to us this last year. And so, I want to look with you guys this morning at a passage that has haunted me and encouraged me over this past year in some incredible ways. So Luke 7, if you've got your Bibles open, read along with me, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house who had invited Jesus in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. So Jesus says, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus says. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do, do you see this woman? I came into your house Then Jesus turned to the woman and said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Imagine for a moment that a bill was mailed to your house, got there when you weren't home, And before you had a chance to come home and pay it yourself, your roommate went and paid the bill for you. Now, how would you feel toward your roommate after that? That would entirely depend on the size of the bill that we're talking about, right? If it was a parking ticket, $30 maybe, I don't know what they are these days. You'd be thankful, right? But certainly not thinking about naming a kid after them. Uh, what if it was your electrical bill in Florida in the summer? Uh, what if it was a hospital bill? Had an unexpected trip to the ER, cost you a couple thousand dollars? What if it was your student loan debt? Now we're on to something. Now we're now we're maybe thinking about naming a kid after them. Middle name at least is starting to come in the picture here, right? What if it was something insurmountable? Now, as of this week, the U.S. consumer debt uh, reached an all-time high, $14 trillion. What if that was your debt? What if you knew you were buried under something that meant you were sunk? You had zero chance of ever paying it off. You would be a debtor for life. If you knew... If you do, you were sitting under a debt that you can never pay off, that you would take to the grave with you and someone paid it for you. You you would be overcome with gratitude, thankfulness, love for that person, wouldn't you? At this party in Luke 7, two people meet Jesus. One thinks they have a parking ticket spiritual debt. The other, an insurmountable spiritual debt. One is aware of their spiritual state. The other is completely deceived. One, Luke says, lived an incredibly sinful life, but actually knows God. The other was an incredibly religious life, but couldn't be farther away from God. Luke is using these two characters, Simon and the woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet to analyze you this morning. You see, Luke is, like the rest of the books in the New Testament, an intensely theological book. But what's different from Luke with all the other books in the Bible and all the other books in the New Testament, even the other Gospels, is that Luke doesn't tell us his theology. He shows it to us. And one of the primary ways that Luke shows us his theology is by the characters that he highlights and the ways that they interact with Jesus. Luke wants you to see yourselves in those characters and through that recognize where you stand in relation to Jesus Christ right this second. So who are you in this story? This morning, who are you? parking ticket debt or an insurmountable debt, aware or deceived, near to God or far. Three things in this passage that will help you answer that for yourself this morning. An unacceptable devotion, an unbelievable forgiveness, and an unspeakable claim. So first, an unacceptable devotion. Imagine the scene, if you can, again, in your head. Simon, Pharisee, who were the most godly people you could think of at that time, social elite, upstanding, well-respected man, invites Jesus Christ to his house for a dinner party. Now, in that time, when you hosted a dinner party, it was an open party, meaning that the guests who you invited would be in the main room at this main table eating together. But it was open for anybody in the town to come and kind of sit on the fringe, sit on the outside of the party and watch, observe, listen to the conversation. But nobody from the town who wasn't invited personally themselves would ever dare think about breaking the barrier, walking into the main room, plopping up a chair right at the main table. And Luke says there's a woman from the town there. But not just any woman. No, to the people in the town there, she was that woman. Someone who Luke says lived a big life of big sin for everybody to see. And here she comes and she commits the biggest party foul you can. She pulls up a chair at the head table and fills the room with something that to Jesus smelled incredibly sweet. Luke says starting in verse 37, that the woman came when she learned that Jesus was eating there at the Pharisee's house. And she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, now to understand what he's saying here, at that time when people ate at a dinner party, you would eat kind of laying on your side. And so your head would be right here at the table, your feet would be pointing backwards. And so Luke says this woman came She stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Think about this. The most unlikely person in that town... The woman who walked around with the scarlet letter on her. Luke, he's putting a spotlight on her here because something has happened to her spiritually. Something that Luke is showing us makes her an example of what true repentance and faith, what true devotion to Jesus Christ looks like. In her, Luke says, you can see all the characteristics of what genuine Christianity, genuine Christian devotion looks like. There's five things I think we can just really easily see right off the bat. First, her devotion was intense. Uh, the verb that Luke uses here to describe her weeping uh, is also used to describe in the, in the New Testament and Greek at that time, rain showers. Meaning this wasn't just a couple tears that she had coming down. This woman was weeping, sobbing, overcome, because of what Jesus Christ has done for her, as she kisses his feet, which Jesus says hyperbolically later in the passage, she hasn't stopped doing from the moment she came here. Now, you might not be someone who's going to have the same visible, emotional response to Jesus Christ as this woman, right? Maybe you're a T on the Myers-Briggs, like me, a little more reserved, but genuine Christian devotion should still have an intensity to it. That's not fanaticism. That's not naive, youthful enthusiasm. No, it's this focused passion. Because you've become so captivated by Jesus Christ that you won't settle for anything less than every part of him. So it was intense. Second, it was intimate. Uh, As she's weeping, these rain showers of tears... Uh, They fall on Jesus' feet, and Luke says she lets down her hair and dries his feet with him. Now, in in that day, if a woman, uh, women didn't ever let down their hair in public at all. Uh, if, If a woman had done that in public, it would have been thought of as incredibly immodest. If you were a woman in that time, the only time that you let down your hair was in your bedroom with your husband. And this woman, though, comes in in front of a whole crowd of people who we already know what they're probably thinking about her, lets down her hair in front of Jesus because this genuine devotion of her has an intimacy with Jesus Christ, where he's not the Jesus of your parents, he's not the Jesus of your spouse, he's not the Jesus of your childhood, He's not the Jesus of your past when you were more connected with God. He's not the Jesus of your political party or your culture. No, he's the Jesus that you know personally, intimately. Yeah, in Luke or in John 10, Jesus describes it this way. I know your voice and you know mine. That's the intimacy, intimacy that she's found with him. So third. It's costly though, too. Her devotion is costly. Luke says she comes with this alabaster jar of perfume. Now this perfume, this nard that she had with her would have been incredibly expensive. A pound of it would have cost an entire year's wages. Incredibly expensive, making a bit of a leap, but probably the most expensive thing that she owned. And she comes and cracks it open and pours out the whole thing on Jesus' feet. Why? Because he's become that valuable to her. Is that valuable to you? Two more. Fourth, her devotion is humble. Notice where she is this whole time. Not at his head. Not looking at him face to face. No, at his feet. Weeping, wiping, kissing, anointing, all at Jesus' feet. In that time, that people walked around open-toed sandals all day. Feet were disgusting. Feet were where the servants sat. And here comes in this woman and sits herself at Jesus' feet, full of tears, as she grieves the sin in her life that necessitated Christ's forgiveness, humbling herself before him without, without an ounce of presumption before her forgiver. Last one, her devotion's joyful. Uh, You know, I said Luke doesn't tell us his theology, he shows us. Well, one of the most striking things in Luke is that one of the ways that he uh, shows us what genuine, true repentance looks like is that in Luke, it almost always happens to somebody when they're at a feast, a party, a celebration. Because what Luke is trying to show us is that repentance, while it should elicit sorrow for sin, should also bring in us this deep joy in the forgiveness that we've had in God. You know, when I first heard this, it, it was by a, a, a scholar named Michael Ovi uh, in a lecture he gave, it completely changed the way that I viewed repentance. Here's how I reviewed, viewed repentance probably my entire life up until that point. It's me coming to God, tail between my legs, And saying, well, I did it again. Uh, I know your patience is probably running a little thin. I wouldn't blame you if you didn't want anything to do with me either right now. I'm sorry, and I'll try to do better next time. Luke is saying is no, 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 no. Luke is showing us through this woman at the party here that genuine devotion, while in one sense is humble, is also joyful. While it has sorrow over sin, it also has joy in being found by a God who loves to forgive. That's what this woman found. Most people most commentators, if you read it, most scholars, most pastors on this, they see her tears very narrowly, and they just see in them sorrow, regrets over her life of sin that's being forgiven. But Luke is saying, no, 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 don't, don't count her out like that. She is way more complex than you understand. There's not just sorrow over her sin here, but there's joy in being found by a forgiving God. You see, implied in verse 37 is that she's heard Jesus before. I don't know Where? but she's heard that there's this man who can forgive the worst of the worst of your sins. And she believed and she was forgiven. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 47. This whole thing that she's doing is because she knows she's been forgiven. So this devotion From this woman who lived a big life of big sin for everyone to see. Filled the room they're in with this smell that to Jesus was sweet. To Simon, it was a stench. Simon, probably right now, can't even believe that this woman is at the party. This woman that to Simon was something that the cat dragged in. And... He's probably thinking right now, what is she doing? She's touching Jesus right now in the main room at my house. Simon instantly forms an entire opinion about the whole thing. And he says in verse 39, when the Pharisee who invited him in saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, one, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she too is a sinner. Simon's thinking, if Jesus was really a prophet, he'd know who this woman was. And if Jesus was really as pious as Simon was, he wouldn't ever let her near him. Simon writes off the entire scene as completely unacceptable. Clearly, he's thinking Jesus didn't deserve this type of devotion. And if he did, clearly this woman wasn't the person that should be giving it to him. An unacceptable devotion. Second, an unbelievable forgiveness. Jesus perceives, all right, what Simon's thinking, probably all over his face. And he tells him a parable starting in verse 40 about how God runs his bookkeeping. Jesus says to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. So Jesus says two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. Now, denarii at that time was one day's wage. So this guy owed him about two years' worth of wages. Uh, The other person owed him 50 denarii, so about two months' worth of wages. Neither of them had the money to pay it off, so he forgave them the debts of both. Now, the Pharisees listening to this are probably thinking, yeah, fat chance, you know, money lenders don't forgive their debtors. That's the whole point of them. You know, nobody becomes a loan shark because they want to give back to their community. But this one's different. Now this one, Jesus says, when people can't pay him back, he forgives. And so now he asks Simon, which of them will love him more? And Simon, begrudgingly, says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, good, Simon, you get it. The debt is sin. Uh, the debtor who owed less is Simon. The one who owed more is the woman. The money lender is God who does what nobody at that time, nobody now, would ever expected him to do. Forgives the two debtors when they can't pay. And Jesus' whole point, whole point of this whole parable is this. Big debt plus big forgiveness equals a big love. That the way we know God starts by knowing, by owning our sin, our debt, our guilt before him, because when we do, we see even more the God who Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher in the 1800s, says loves to forgive even more than we love to sin. And now, what Jesus is saying here is probably a little difficult for us to grasp today, because in one sense, what he's saying is, if you really want to know God, one of the places it starts is by knowing, owning a sense of spiritual guilt in your life. And as modern uh, Western people today, like you and me, we, we don't really like to think about guilt. We have a guilted version in our life. And it's really something that's been working on us for probably about 100 years now. Uh, back in the early 1900s, Sigmund Freud changed the way that you and I think about guilt. When he said, there's actual guilt... And then there's a sense of guilt. One is a fact that you need to take responsibility for in your life. The other, though, is just a feeling that you need to correct through psychotherapy. Now, Freud wasn't intending it to be necessarily used this way, but uh, his disciples who came after them took this idea and they exploited it. They realized, well, we can make people feel really good about themselves. If we start shifting all of our understanding of guilt from actual guilt into merely just a sense of guilt that now we can help you correct through psychotherapy and all of our kind of modern techniques. Flash forward today and we've gone one step further. We live today by what, you know, one philosopher Charles Taylor calls self-authorizing morality, which essentially just means this, me, my social circle, we write the rules we decide what's right and wrong we decide what we should or shouldn't feel guilty about meaning that you and me western people today western thought has isolated ourselves isolated humans from guilt more than ever before in any time in history of the world and it sounds really nice doesn't it guilt free life who wouldn't want that but is it helping you is it helping your relationships helping the way that you connect to society? A lot of modern, secular psychologists, therapists right now would say no. That actually there's a form of guilt that you're cheating yourself if you don't embrace. Christianity takes it one step farther than that. Christianity says something even better. It says there's a type of guilt that when you embrace it makes you more human, not less of one. That as St. Paul says, there is a godly guilt that leads to repentance and life. Now, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, when we ex- embrace our spiritual guilt, our insurmountable debt before God, we actually can know through that Jesus Christ better than the angels who have no sense of guilt and thereby no knowledge of forgiveness could ever even dream of. I mean, can you imagine that Christianity is saying your guilt, your debt puts you in a place of privilege because through it you can know the forgiveness of God more than anything else in the created universe? Your guilt isn't a burden, Jesus is saying, through me, it can become a gift, through which you know my grace more than angels who are with me in heaven right now know. Unexpected, undeserved, unbelievable forgiveness. That's God's bookkeeping. Now, though, Jesus uses this parable to explain this woman to Simon, It's not operating under God's bookkeeping. No, Simon's operating under man's bookkeeping. Jesus uh, says, starting in verse 44 to Simon, you did not, you did not, you did not. You did not wash my feet. You did not give me a kiss when I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she, Jesus says, she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. She has not stopped kissing me from the moment I came in here. She has anointed me, not with cheap olive oil, but the most expensive perfume she had. And you see what's happened here? This woman has out-hosted the host. This woman, who lived a big life, of big sin for everyone to see, has done what Simon, the pious Pharisee, should have done but didn't. And Jesus isn't just talking here about host and a party. No, he's ultimately talking about sin and forgiveness. You see, it's clear that this woman was a sinner. But is she the only sinner looking at Jesus right now? Simon thought he had a parking ticket debt and that he could pay it off. He thought he was different than this woman. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 Simon. You are both under a debt that you can't pay off. The only difference between you and her is you're not aware of it. Um, A couple months ago, my wife and I watched uh, Borg vs. McEnroe on Netflix, if anybody's seen that. It's about uh, tennis rivalry between Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe, who's played uh, in the movie by Shia LaBeouf. And uh, the two of them as rivals couldn't be more different. Uh, John McEnroe, if you know him, if you've ever seen him, he's wild. He, he was off the rails. He'd show up to practice hungover. He'd break his rackets in the middle of games. He'd curse and spit at the crowd. He'd get in arguments with the officials. He was nuts. I mean, that's part of why people watched him was the spectacle. Borg, methodical, focused, set his room to the same temperature every night, prepared his rackets by walking on them in this same pattern for every match, trained like clockwork. He was the picture of someone who was restrained, reserved. He was a machine. But the more I started watching through this movie, the more I realized on the inside, they are both fiercely angry people largely at the same person in their life. McEnroe expressed his anger through rage. Borg expressed his anger through discipline. You know, in Luke 7, we have the spiritual John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg. Simon thought he was different, but on the inside, they're the same person with the same insurmountable spiritual debt that they can't pay. One of them showed it through wild living, the other through meticulous religion, but religion that was ultimately about him, not God. And so it was just as much an offense as this other woman's sin. At the end of the day, without God's forgiveness, they're both sunk. You know, if Jesus was here today, he might put it this way. Mid-America, Bible belt, cultural Christianity can keep you just as far away from God as modern intellectual East Coast secularism. You know, one of the most ironic things that you see when you read through the Gospels is that Jesus repeatedly shows the Pharisees like Simon... And how American moralistic Christianity today that boils down to essentially checking boxes, tallying rules that puts the onus on you to pay off your debt to God by putting deposits into your account through your spiritual good works. The great irony in all of those that Jesus points out is that they think that they're tough on sin. That that, that we take sin more seriously than anybody else does. And Jesus says, no, you don't take it far seriously enough. Only a Christianity based on grace, based on redemption solely through Christ, truly can understand the nature of the debt on our own we sit under that we can't pay off. See, Simon's problem is, he doesn't think he has that big of a debt. He doesn't need that for much forgiveness, and thereby, he doesn't really love God that much. And here's what haunts me about this passage. How much am I like Simon and I don't even know it. You know, how much do I walk around thinking what I think Simon probably thought in this passage, God, you're actually pretty fortunate to have me around. You know, when's the last time you thought that? If it wasn't for me, this family, this marriage, this community, this church, we would all be in some really rough shape. You know, if the woman in the story could speak to us right now, she would say, are you nuts? You are either far too prideful or far too naive about the spiritual debt you sit under that you can't pay off. And yeah, we all do it. None of us truly know the nature of our sin. None of us truly know the nature of our debt. But here's the thing. When we start to see the Simon inside of us, the real question to be asking isn't, am I a sinner? Or even, am I the biggest sinner? But am I forgiven? You see, after those three, you did not, but she Statements. Jesus says in verse 47 Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But for whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus is saying, This woman here is way closer to God loves God way more than Simon ever does, ironically, because she's become aware of how far she was from God. That knowing God comes through properly calculating your spiritual debt, by owning your sin, but not so that God can shame you. Not so that he can rub it in your face. Not so that he can assign you to a life of spiritual labor to work your debt off. No, so he can surprise you with his love. So he can overwhelm you with his mercy. So he can show you the one and only way that we truly can know God through his forgiveness. A forgiveness that you can see in this passage isn't shocked by the worst of you, isn't put off by the parts of you that nobody else sees. A forgiveness that seeks you out, not not one that you seek out, a forgiveness that comes without us earning it. That's the whole point. None of, neither of the debtors could pay it off. And a forgiveness that transforms you. This woman comes, Jesus is saying, crashed your party, Simon, and anointed me with the most expensive perfume she had. Not, not to get my forgiveness, but because she's got it. Her love, her devotion was because she was beginning to grasp in that moment how much she's been loved by God through Christ. You see, what Simon took for an unacceptable devotion was because this woman has experienced an unbelievable forgiveness that came last from hearing an unspeakable claim. Jesus, in verse 48, stops talking to Simon, and he now turns and he starts talking to this woman. And he says to her, Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees listening would probably be thinking, Wait, 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 what? What did he just claim to do? Who is it, they say in verse 49? Who is this who even forgives? Present tense, right now. He's saying this is happening in the moment. Who is this who forgives sins? You know, the Pharisees would probably be thinking, okay, wait, we're smart people. We know our Bible. Yeah, you know, a prophet can tell someone their sins are forgiven, but only as they speak on behalf of God. Your sins are forgiven, thus saith the Lord. Nobody would have the audacity to actually say, I myself declare to you that your sins are forgiven. And they'd also be thinking, and wait, we, we, we know, Jesus, Leviticus 17, 11, you're not fooling us. Without blood spilt on the floor, there is no forgiveness. We don't see any blood. And Jesus, he perceives their doubts and he doubles down. He says, no, it's exactly what I'm saying. And he turns to the woman, and he says, your faith in me implied has saved you. Go in peace. You know the Pharisees say, "Wait, wait! Forgive sins? Where's God? Where's the blood?" And Jesus says, "You're looking at him because Jesus knows that in not too long he is going to the cross, or he will die on it—the death that makes God's forgiveness possible—a death that was intimate." where the sinless God became like sinful people like you and me in every way possible, even to the point of dying in between two criminals of the state. A death that was intense, where Jesus had every temptation thrown at him, every trial experienced in his life, and yet nothing, nothing could deter him. Nothing could persuade him from his love for you. A death that was costly, so costly that for God to forgive sin and stay true to his character as someone who is completely uncompromising towards sin, he would have to pay the debt himself. He would have to kill his only son and a death that was humble. A death that meant Jesus didn't look down from heaven and say, okay, you come to me, you pay the price. You settle the debt. He said, No, I know you can't. So I'll come to you. I'll pay the price. I'll settle the debt. And when we experience that unbelievable forgiveness, when we listen to Jesus' unspeakable claim here, we're freed. Freed from no longer being deceived about our debt, unaware about our sin free to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives, to through his word, to through other Christians, to through just our daily experience, show us the magnitude of our debt so we can be surprised by the transforming forgiveness of God. Big debt plus big forgiveness equals a really big love. So who are you today? Who are you in this story? Parking ticket debt or an insurmountable debt? Do you know it? And has it been forgiven? Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today, through this passage, help us see our sin and experience your forgiveness so that we would be transformed to love Christ even more. Amen.